The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So those who study culture, cultural observers, have noticed a shift happening in culture regarding the way we view other relationships, particularly regarding the way we view marriage. I think legal scholar John Witt Jr. is helpful when he says this. There has been such a shift in our culture that now the freedom of each individual is so paramount that even marriage today exists to find personal fulfillment and sexual fulfillment through self-actualization. I think a helpful illustration of that is the Tara Parker Pope written New York Times article. The title gives it away. This is her title. The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. And here's what she wrote in the article. In modern relationships, people are looking for a partner, a partner who will make their own life more interesting, one who will help me attain my own goals. So I don't see any reason to bury the lead this morning. Let me tell you that I think the scriptures teach the precise opposite. I actually believe that the Bible teaches that self-centeredness is the cause of destruction in our relationships, especially the most intimate ones. But the solution is the self-denial that only Jesus Christ can work. And so the title of this morning's sermon is The Foundation of Marriage. And we'll be looking at Ephesians 5, especially verses 22 through 30. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 1162. So you'll want to join us there in the text, page 1162. I believe what the scripture teaches us here is that the foundation of marriage is both the pattern and the power of Jesus. The pattern and the power of Jesus. Now, Ephesians has been telling us about this new walk. Chapter 2, it tells us we once walked a certain way, but now there's a new walk. And then chapter 4, we don't need to walk the way we used to, but now there's a new walk. And then as we read earlier today, chapter 5, A new walk of love, the love that Christ has. So if in honesty in your heart you're thinking this morning, the kind of things that were just read are not things that I commonly see or commonly feel. The reality is that's because they're not normal for us. They're not normal to humanity. These are things that Jesus Christ does. They are not things we naturally have. In perhaps the biggest understatement of the last 2,000 years, Paul wrote, this is a profound mystery. (laughs) It is more so than that. It is impossible apart from Christ. So this morning, what we are going to see is from Ephesians 5, 22 through 30, the beauty of submission, the beauty of sacrifice, and the beauty of surrender. Those are the three points for this morning. But we're going to be in this passage for a little bit. So today's passage, I titled The Foundation of Marriage, next Sunday, Lord willing, The Covenant of Marriage, and the following Sunday, The Dance of Marriage. And by that, I mean the dynamic nuances of a husband and wife. I'm writing these in real time, so they're they're working titles, but that's what I'm thinking for right now. If this morning, though, you're thinking, awesome, a sermon on marriage, I'm not married, I don't need to hear today's sermon... Let me give you a couple reasons why I think it is still for all of us. The first is because, as Paul has revealed in this passage, this passage shows us the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that the beauty of the gospel 
is made clearer through this passage. In fact, if you're a believer in Christ, you'll be married to him eternally as his bride. Therefore, understanding how he treats his bride and how his bride submits to him is our eternal business. Secondly, though, marriage is something that is greatly shaped by our community. Our brother began in chapter 5, verse 15, for a reason. Verses 15 through 21 talk about how we live with one another. And then on purpose, verse 22 begins with how we live at home. Let me remind us of something. The relationships that you have nudge you towards an outcome. All the friendships you have, the meaningful relationships you have, they nudge you in a direction. So let me actually ask for your help and offer mine. Stephanie and I need you to nudge us towards Christ. And I'm here to help nudge you towards Christ. When we nudge each other that way, we help shape each other. Whether or not you're married, you're still nudging. So we all need to nudge each other well. Third, I'd remind us that you don't know the future. Perhaps God has a future for you of marriage. And if you're dating right now, the Bible doesn't have a category for dating, but all of the things that you're doing in dating should be an appropriate preview of the principles that are in today's passage. They should lead you towards that, even in the relationship you have now. And then finally, the other reason why this passage is for everyone is because this passage touches on a role that all of us are in at some point. And now let me use the PowerPoint, which I very, very rarely do, as you know. All right, so I want to show you the structure of the relationships in today's passage. The first one is the structure of wives and husbands in Christ of the church. The text will tell us, Wives are to submit to their husbands, and I have the arrow going past the husbands because they're submitting to the Lord. The passage will say that that is the way the church ought to approach Christ. But then the passage will flip the other direction. It'll say, husbands, love your wives, give yourself for your wives, as Christ gave himself for the church. Then the passage will flip again, and it'll say, children, obey your parents, as in the Lord, for this is right. It'll come with a promise that it'll go well with you. So the Lord has a promise for those fulfilling this role. Then it'll talk about fathers. Notice I have the arrow towards bringing up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not provoking them through exasperation. And it comes with a warning, knowing that it is the Lord who is the ultimate father. And then in 6, 5 through 9, we'll read this. Slaves, obey your masters, but not for their sake, but for Christ, who is your heavenly master. And then it'll give a promise that Christ will reward such and preserve such and care for such. And then it'll give a great warning. But masters, treat your slaves correctly, knowing that it is Christ to whom you answer. So I just want to show you that the structure repeats itself in such a way that every one of us at different points in our life, we'll be in different different portions of this role. All of us will need to submit. All of us will need to use grace under authority and grace in the exercise of our authority. Jesus should shape the way we respond to all of the structured order that God has made. So today's is marriage, and that is Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. We need the humility of Christ in it the humility of Christ in our use of it, and the humility of Christ in how we carry it out. Let me just say up front, I understand that we exist in a speck of space and time, and every culture 
that has ever read the Bible has parts of it that they find uncomfortable. Parts of it that seem to go against the space and time spec that they find themselves on. But we should expect that to be the case because this is not human speculation, but divine revelation. These are not man-made thoughts from the left or man-made thoughts from the right. This is God's truth from above. And so in it, we find something transcultural and countercultural. And we begin by seeing the beauty of submission. So join me in God's word in Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Because I have a few sermons on just this passage, I'll try not to share every thought I have this morning, but a couple little details that are important. First, the word own, or translated your own. It's one Greek word in the original. Notice then that the relationship from a wife to a husband, the word is repeated in verse 25, for a husband to a wife, your own wife, your own husband, means that this is specific to your spouse. So the direction that's going to follow is not for wives with all husbands or husbands with all wives or men with all women. But within the marital relationship, there are particulars in the way we interact with one another. In fact, the Greek word is idios, which is where we get our English word idiosyncrasy. So the idea is you relate to your specific person with all the idiosyncrasies that they have. And they relate to you with all the idiosyncrasies that you have, which reminds me to give a point of application here. A husband and a wife should never, ever, ever compare themselves to another husband or wife. They should never go home and say, if I was with them, then things would go this way. Because the text begins by telling us, your own, your unique idiosyncrasies ordained by God with that other person's. Now, surely, one of the difficult words for our cultural moment is the word submit. Even in my rough draft of the sermon, I had six pages just on that word. (laughs) I've condensed it down now to one, but let me give a couple thoughts on it. First, two common ditches that I've noticed having studied at a very serious academic level, this word for for years, actually, written papers on it, interacting with people at other universities. Uh, I've noticed two common ditches over church history. One ditch is to think that the word submission implies inferiority of kind or essence, as if the person who's submitting is an inferior. That, of course, is not true. We saw in verse 21 that word is used to submit to one another, These are people who share the image of God and are redeemed in Christ, so they must not be inferior in their essence or kind. And that interpretation has sadly led to a great amount of abuse or oppression. But there's a more common ditch today, and that's the ditch on the other side, and that is to say that the word simply means nothing. That the word submit cannot mean anything. There must not be any structure or authority at all. But this is the way we have always felt towards God's order, which is why Isaiah 53, verse 6, tells us truth in a mirror. All we like sheep have gone astray. Naturally, when we hear that there is an authority that God has made, even God himself, our natural disposition is to push against it. Now, let's talk about the first ditch. This word, hupatasso, means to order under. So if you're a note taker, the word submit means to order under. It is not subservience, not the obeisance of an animal. It is not suppression. 
I heard a story of a husband and a wife driving, and the husband holding the map was getting lost. This is a common story. (laughs) The wife then was trying to show him how to find the right way, and the child in the back seat said, Mom, suppress, suppress. And she said, No, it's not suppress, it's submit. They don't mean the same thing. That's true. The word submit doesn't mean to suppress. It means to use your gifts freely to build up the person God has placed in your life. We know that because the verse says in verse 24, in the way the church submits to Christ. The church doesn't erase our gifts or abandon them. We use them. We exercise them. We exercise them to build up what Christ desires us to build up. All right, a few further thoughts on this very important word. First, in the Greek, I know this is a nerdy point, but stick with me for a second. In the Greek, it's in the middle voice. If you're an English major, that means it's a reflexive verb. It is acting on itself. Some of the old translations say, submit yourselves. This is very important because it means it's not done compulsory, nor is it coerced, but it is glad, free, joyful giving of yourself to the other person. Notice, though, it says to do so as to the Lord. This means at least two things, that the motivation of submission is to please the Lord, recognizing that the person may not always be worthy of it. But it also protects the person submitting, because it means that since it's done to the Lord, the Lord can mandate the parameters of it. It could not be used in a way that would lead that person towards harm or towards what would actually be out of step with the Lord. Ultimately, though, this word is a call of self-denial as is this entire passage. Rather than self-centeredness, it's calling us for self-abandonment, self-denial. It's calling us to the life of Christ. Now verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. The word submit is a difficult one. The word head has even more. Um, academic shots across the bow as to whether this word means what it seems to sound to mean. Some have noted that in the semantic range history, the word head could mean source, and so some interpret it to mean source of support or source of life. But let me just show you from the text. I don't normally make you turn a couple pages. Will you turn to chapter 1 in Ephesians? You don't need to be a Greek scholar to see how Paul uses this word in this very letter. Ephesians 1, please, verse 19. I want you to see how he uses the word head so that you can draw your own conclusion. Ephesians 1, verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As we see of Paul's use of head in Ephesians 1, the word head clearly and inarguably includes authority. The question then is not whether or not the head has authority. The question is whether he will use that authority as Christ uses his authority. Will he use it abusively? 
Will he try to escape it, or will he exercise it as Christ? We can go back to chapter 5 now in Ephesians. And while you're turning there, I want to quote Brian Chapel. Some of you will know his name, pastor, author for many years. He and his wife, Kathy, co-authored a book called Each for Each Other, and here's what he said. 25 years ago, when Kathy and, our, Kathy and I started doing marriage seminars, I would say the main concern we had in the church was a sense of men abusing their authority. In a, I'm the head of the home, I make the decisions sort of way. The Bible then was being used to defend abusive behavior. This is not biblical authority. But Brian goes on to say this, but I must tell you that that is no longer the age we are in. After a generation of Homer Simpson and Everybody Loves Raymond and Modern Family, where husbands are either bigots or buffoons, now the sense is that young Christian husbands in today's culture are so scared of authority and being identified with such caricatures that they try to escape even the proper use of authority. Now, I've never even heard of two of the shows that he mentioned, (laughs) so I'm not in the best position to give pop cultural criticism. But I would say that when I started pastoral ministry... Fifteen years ago, I observed the same trend. What I thought would be the common thing, men abusing authority, I saw more commonly was men escaping responsibility. So Brian continues, The Bible clearly establishes here that there is a good kind of authority given to those to wield like Christ for his purposes in their homes. So what kind of head is a Christ-like head? And the answer is, a sacrificial head. I was helped by watching this week uh, NASCAR driver Brian Scott. And you could watch this this afternoon on YouTube. He married a woman named Whitney who had a three-year-old daughter already. And so in their marriage ceremony, there's this moment where he, a man who drives a car 200 miles per hour in races, gets down on his knees so that he can be at the height of three-year-old Brielle and then says this to her. I promise to always hold your hand and skip with you down the street and bring comfort to your life. I vow to say, to make you say your prayers before you eat. I promise to read you stories at night and to always tuck you in real tight. I vow to show you how a man should treat a woman in my relationship with your mother. And above all else, I vow to protect you, care for you, and love you forever. It's a good illustration of how a head like Christ is a sacrificial head who goes low to use his God-given authority to protect, promote, provide, and care for those to whom he's called. We understand, of course, that God can overcome any circumstance, but let me tell you some data that focus on the family found. In the polling that they did, they found that in the child-rearing years, the years that you're raising children at home, the person who comes to Christ first in the family has a difference of impact on the family's following of Christ. If the child is the first person in the home to come to Christ, then 3% of the time does the rest of the family come to know Christ. If the wife is the first to come to know Christ as the children are being raised, then it's a 17% probability that the rest of the family will come to follow Christ. But if the husband and father during the child-rearing years comes to know Christ, according to their polling data, it is a 93% chance that the rest of the family will follow Christ. This simple data, men, is telling us something that this text is hinting at. Unlike the lies our culture often tells us, men, God has given us outsized impact on our home. 
And how we wield that is extremely important. How we wield that as Christ, the sacrificial head, will have incredible influence on the direction of the home that God has given us. In the home, the reason God has put someone in a position of responsibility is so that they can guide them towards Christ. R.C. Sproul put it well when he said this, in a 50-50 situation where there is no final authority, what human beings tend to do is to be locked in a perpetual power struggle to get control. And God settles that by placing the burden of responsibility on the man. So men, the reason God has done this is because the weightier burden, the heavier responsibility, and the higher accountability is something God has placed on men. By the way, men, this doesn't mean that we don't desperately need the input of our wives. I can't find my shoes without Stephanie. (laughs) There's almost nothing I can do without her. I can't think of maybe but one time in my life that we were having a conversation and didn't immediately have consensus after a few minutes. So I'm not in any way saying that we override somebody at all. But our desire is to help lead them towards Christ. So now verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The phrase in everything means in every area. We open ourselves to vulnerability in all areas, but we do so as a team because we're both submitting to Christ together. I greatly appreciate, though, how hard these words can strike someone. So let me quote Rebecca McLaughlin. Here's what she wrote. I was an undergraduate at Cambridge when I first wrestled with the words in Ephesians 5. I came from an academically driven, equality-oriented, all-female high school, and I was now studying in a majority male college at Cambridge, and I was repulsed when I read, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord? You've got to be kidding me. I had three problems with these verses. First, that wives should submit. I knew women were just as competent as men. If there was any wisdom in asymmetrical decision-making, surely it would depend on competency. My second problem was that wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. It was one thing for me to submit to Jesus Christ, the self-sacrificing king of the universe, quite another to submit to a fallible, sinful man. And my third problem was the idea that the husband was the head of the wife. That seemed to present a hierarchy at odds with equality. So at first, she continues, I tried to explain the shock away. I tried to argue that maybe in the Greek, the word submit doesn't mean submit. (laughs) So the rest of the passage must imply mutual submission if verse 21 talks about submission between one another. But the command to submit to wives occurs three times in the New Testament, where husbands, conversely, are called to love. Indeed, she continues, When I trained my lens on the commands to husbands, the Ephesians passage started to come into focus because verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? By dying on the cross, naked and bleeding, suffering for her, putting her needs above his own, sacrificing everything for her. And I asked myself how I would feel if that command was given to the wives. Ephesians 5.22 is sometimes critiqued as a mandate for spousal abuse, and tragically some have used it that way. But the commands to husbands makes that reading impossible. When I realized the lens for teaching 
was the lens of the gospel itself, it made sense. The only way to enter a relationship with Jesus, male or female, is to come flat on our face without rights, to recognize that he denied himself so that we could be saved. I think she's correct. The submission here in this passage is not one we have, but it's one that Christ had. He had it to parents who didn't understand him. He had it to disciples who couldn't easily follow him. And finally, he had it before Pilate and at the Garden of Gethsemane submitting to the Father, not my will, but yours. So you look back up in Ephesians 5, verse 2. Christ loving us and giving himself up for us was a sacrifice to God the Father, submitting to the God the Father's good plan. So yes, is this natural to us? No, but Jesus can give us the power for it today, tomorrow, or in the years to come. But now number two, the beauty of sacrifice. So verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Perhaps what's most interesting about this is it doesn't say husbands, exercise your headship. In fact, it never says that. But instead, husbands, love your wives. And how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, not lording over, but emptying himself. The word gave himself is a word of initiation. He is taking the initiation to pursue, redeem, restore, and ultimately rescue. So it is a sacrificial and self-emptying love. But now verse 26, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. There are many times in the Bible where a washing ceremony occurs, but if you think of Jesus on the night he was betrayed, washing his disciples' feet, knowing that among them are Peter, who he predicted would deny him and disown him, and yet taking a position of self-emptying, sacrifice, surely one that, as he explains, is symbolic of the cleansing he's about to give them at the cross. That's why verse 26 ends by saying, washing of water with the word. The word of what? The word of the gospel. The good news of what Jesus has done becomes the good news with which we are washed. The manner of it then is humble. But the purpose of it is exclusive. To sanctify is to set apart for one in a process of self-denial. Verse 27, this love is splendid so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands then are seeking the splendor of their wives in God's sight. And that is actually satisfying. So look down verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. If reading verse 28 causes you to scratch your head and say, well, that sounds self-serving. I mean, if loving your wife, you only do for your own benefit. But don't forget the math. The two have become one flesh. Therefore, by loving the other, of course, he's loving himself. They are no longer two. They are one. When the husband gives himself, it is a blessing to them both. Now, at this point, we could be struggling with this sort of surrender and submission and sacrifice. I don't need that. I don't know that I even want to do that. Partly why we may be struggling with it is we now define the word love 
differently than the way the Bible describes the word love. We tend to use the word love in our common parlance to talk about what I'm getting. But the Bible uses the word love to talk about what I'm giving. Let me give an example. If you're watching uh, TV and there's this couple that's dating and the man proposes to the woman and the woman says, how dare you propose? I'm mad at you. I don't need a piece of paper or a formal public ceremony to demonstrate my love for you. What she means by that is right now I'm getting what I want to get. Why would we change that? I like the arrangement as it is today. But that's not what the Bible means when it talks about love. It's not about what I'm currently getting. This is why for thousands of years, Christian wedding vows had nothing to say about how the person presently feels, but only about their future promises. Because love in the Bible is a promise of what one will give That does include joys that one receives, but is rooted in a promise of what one is given. This passage then is talking about what one gives in faith that Christ will provide throughout the process. Even on days when we don't feel like it, we go to Christ and say, Lord, help me to love like you love, to surrender like you surrender, to give like you give, and to rejoice in the process. We actually have to admit that today we're much more likely to approach love in an acquisitive consumer way than even our forefathers. Sometimes people read the Bible and read things and think, that is so archaic. I would never act that way. There's a scene in Genesis where uh, Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son. And then when they see the woman, there's this moment of how many camels they should give. And, and when you read that, you think, that's terrible. I would never approach relationships in such a consumer way. But of course, we now in many ways think about our consumption of other people in the same sorts of ways. We even talk about people who are available or on the market using marketplace terms to describe how we would view other human beings. The reality is that it's not about whether or not we get something but how we surrender. Spouses often experience this most poignantly when one of the spouses is sick or considerably ill, and one gives and the other receives without expectation of getting. This leads us finally to the beauty of surrender. So Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, just touching on them today. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. If two become one, then they've both surrendered their autonomy and have become conjoined. This mystery is profound. It points to Christ and his church, which is what the marriage is pointing out. 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband naturally. We approach each other with mutual criticism rather than mutual self-surrender. Many a wife, unfortunately, is full of confidence and joy until her husband comes to critique the very thing she's doing. Many a husband seems to be a confident and joyful man until he's belittled by the person whose opinion matters to him most. Men then can approach their marriage with anger domination and evasion, and women can approach their marriage with diminishment and evasion. Instead, verse 33 tells us bluntly that men need to love and give the love to their wife that she needs, and husbands need to receive the respect 
Because as R.C. Sproul said so well, the most fragile thing in the universe is the male ego. (laughs) In reality, we have so many internal problems. And marriage exposes them. Picture a wooden bridge that can handle all sorts of cars, but it has hairline fractures. And when a large enough truck goes on that bridge, it tumbles. See, what marriage does that nothing else does, um, I'll say it in, in a candid way, many of us over the years, our parents, our siblings, our classmates, and our roommates in college told us our flaws. But we could sort of evade them because you could escape that relationship. But then in marriage, you're with this other person who knows you and sees you all the time. And so you can start to have a combative stance towards them, but in reality, it's not a confrontation with them. It's a confrontation with yourself. Those things that you could always hide or evade in all the other relationships you had. But now in this one, you can't escape those things. So in this relationship, you see the things that otherwise you can keep hidden. So why risk the vulnerability of true love? C.S. Lewis is helpful. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. And if you want to keep sure of keeping your heart intact, then give it to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, in that safe, dark, motionless, airless casket, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. You see, the power that all this is talking about requires us to be vulnerable first to the greatest love, to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Look in verse 21 one final time. I want you to see how all the verses that follow build on our response to the love of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 21, submit to one another out of, notice, reverence for Christ. Reverence is to live in awe of. It is awe of Christ and his love. His love that caused him to leave heaven. His love that caused him to go to the cross. His love that submitted. His love that sacrificed. His love that surrenders. That is the only pattern and power for any relationship of this level of intimacy. I want to tell you the testimony of Liz Curtis Higgs. Perhaps you've heard of her. She was an on-air radio personality and eventually an author. And on the radio, she was known for her profanity and her ridicule of Christians. She was so vulgar on the radio that one time Howard Stern told her to clean up her act. Liz had been burned by men, burned by the church, and over the years, one of her neighbors was a Christian couple, and they kept inviting her to their church. And she had no desire to go, but then she wanted to shut them up, so she finally said yes. So she went to church for like the first Sunday in her life, and the pastor got up and opened the Bible to, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. She was so mad that she thought, I guess I'll come for a couple weeks so I can collect ammunition to use on my radio show to destroy these crazy Christians. But then later the pastor said, and husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And at this point, Liz looked over at the neighbor who had brought her and said, well, I'd gladly give myself to any man if I knew he would die for me. And her friend said, Liz, there is a man who died for you. His name is Jesus. You see, the foundation of marriage is the pattern and power of Jesus. You can't serve another until you have awe in the way Christ has served you. You can't empty yourself until you have awe in the emptying of Jesus for you. There's no power in us. There's no self-sacrifice in us. But there is an abundant supply of it in Christ. And a word of hope for you this morning. If you're here and you're like, Josh, I wish I heard this 30 years ago. God told Israel in Joel 2, verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. God can bring back more than you thought you've lost. So surrender to what Christ does for his power. Let's look to him this morning. God, thank you that you have wisely given wisdom to every single area of our life. And marriage is probably one of the most personal and potentially awkward and difficult to hear about. But because of your great love for us, you show us and tell us how to sacrifice in marriage. Lord, I pray for wives. I pray, Lord, that you would work in them what only Jesus can do. Not my will, but thy will be done. And give them the joy that we have as sheep when we follow the good shepherd, even through the valley of the shadow of death. I pray for husbands. Lord, I know that I am naturally very self-centered and I like to be served. Um, and Lord, I need over and over to go to Christ for him to help me sacrifice, empty myself, and serve the benefit of those in my home. Lord, in this, we will need Jesus every single step of the way. But as he gives us grace, he will display himself to our neighbors like this woman Liz. Thank you, Lord, that there is a man who did die for us. And thank you that anybody can come to him and have the years restored. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com. E-I-G-H dot com.